You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. That really are interested in the medical fields and uh, to listen to medical uh, personalities who bring it alive on Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. And uh, this evening's uh, medical file will feature once again our popular Dr. Imran Kika, who's a general uh, practitioner, but uh, he specializes in uh, Chinese uh, medicine. He has a very special interest in that. And he's become world famous for that, also highly recognized in this country. Besides that, he's also the uh, member of the provincial legislature. And I I believe he's become chief whipper in the provincial legislature for the DA. And Alhamdulillah, the portfolio of education. He's done so brilliantly that, uh, you know, he documents every move that he makes. And uh, truly, uh, I really appreciate that uh, he's always uh, keeping me up to speed and keeping many up to speed of what's going around in this country. And... uh, Someone that walks the talk by even visiting different schools, different locations, interacting with the people and so forth. But uh, yeah, let me welcome him and you, the pious and sagacious Ummah, with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, Dr. Imran Kika, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening on Medical Files? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother Shafat. Assalamu alaikum to the listeners. Jazakallah for the opportunity. It's a very warm evening. I hope everything is going well on your side. Um, we are indeed here in the service of the Ummah. And with the beginning of every one of your shows, I always remember the couplet by my Sheikh. You know, we live like this and like that in this dunya. We have to worry about how we'll, we are going to be in the Akhirah. Because one day, if by the fadl and karam and rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we'll be standing in front of him to be judged. And we hope that he will look at us favorably and through his mercy, he will grant us everlasting success. That is our hope, inshallah. Are you inshallah. well? I tell you, alhamdulillah, and I'll tell you, doctor, Admi musafir hai, aata hai, aur jata hai. And you know, uh, he that walks on these... Uh, on the surface of this earth, will one day get into its belly. And I like what you said, but doctor, this humidity, and you know, some of them will give you a uh, formula that, uh, uh, you know, our mothers and our sisters will say, hey, let's have some uh, uh, ice water with lots of uh, ice cubes and uh, put some uh, lemon in and, uh, you know, sugar and salt. And that thing keeps it. But you know, uh, there's something wrong with that concoction because the more you drink, the thirstier you become. I mean, what's ideal for this humidity, doctor? You now, whilst you and I are sitting and talking, I've got uh, about two liters of water here. And, uh, you know, you know, but you can't even drink tap water. You have to go and buy these uh, osmosis or the, the bottled water. And sometimes there, too, you don't know whether they're running a racket with you. Uh, and, you know, people are ending off with gastroenteritis uh, by drinking uh, uh, these waters that have been, comp- you know, heavily compromised with E. coli and so forth. Well, I mean, give us a recipe for what to have, doctor. And I want you to comment on the water that is uh, surrounding us. It's uh, below substandard, doctor. Brother Shavad, uh, you guys in the Tigwini definitely have it difficult. You have the humidity to deal with, uh, which is something we in Newcastle uh, don't have a problem with. We are in the drier parts of the country. So different people living in different parts of the country will have uh, different experiences. Yes, we are going through what I would think is quite a heat wave at the moment. I was listening to the news yesterday and uh, I heard that in Cape Town that the maximum that they were going to reach at some point was 20 degrees, so they're having a bit of a chill there. 
although they are on the coast as well, then they have the humidity to deal with. So, so that is the variations that we have uh, in the Republic and from east to west and north to south. Uh, so you guys in Etegwini have it a little bit difficult, uh, especially with the quality of water that is seeping into your oceans there and the quality of the water in your rivers. Uh, so you do have a problem. If anybody has been paying attention to what my political party has been putting out with regards to the quality of the water, through the oversight inspections that they have been doing to the rivers and all the broken infrastructure that has caused massive leakages of E. coli and other sewage matter directly into our oceans, uh, you do have a big problem there with the quality of water. So, so far, what we are aware of is that you do have safe drinking water. Uh, there was at one point an alert that was sent out that people should boil their water in a certain part of Etegwini. However, that has also passed. Um, so the E. coli into the oceans has reduced through all the effort that has been made. Um, we are still awaiting what the Human Rights Commission will be doing about the matter. However, the quality of the rivers in your city remain atrocious. The last time I spoke to one of my colleagues, there is one of our councillors there that has spearheaded this fight against your municipality in Ategwini or your metro. His name is Gavin Hetcher. And when I spoke to him last week, it was on Wednesday, he said to me, look, the quality of the seawater has improved in terms of the E. coli counts and things like that. However, the quality of water in the rivers remains problematic. And you'll know that um, many economies around the rivers are dependent on those rivers for various activities. However, it has not absolved the metro of the state of disaster that they find themselves in and lack of adequate response to ensuring that the water that is in our rivers uh, through the environmental affairs that they have to take care of, as well as the province of KwaZulu-Natal, where environmental affairs resides as well as one of the portfolios, you know, the oversight from there, as well as the national government that has a responsibility to ensure that our rivers are clean and free of disease causing sewer. Uh, and of course, we are hoping that the quality of water uh, does not, uh, you know, result in diarrheal diseases amongst the citizens of your metro. So it's a significant problem. Um, or the opposite is true for Newcastle, for example, where we have good quality water. So if we look at our drinking water, it's a very decent pH. I have a pH meter every now and again. I check the pH of our water. We check the particulates in the water. We have quite decent drinking water here. So that's a good thing for us uh, and a bad thing for you, unfortunately. So where in doubt, of course, uh, drinking water, uh, bottled water is safer. Uh, we hope that you don't have any fly-by-night company that's just bottling tap water and passing it off as filtered water. For those that are fortunate that they can have filters in their houses, um, that is also quite beneficial. And of course, um, where there is an outbreak of diarrheal diseases, it's always best to to boil the water or even to add a little bit of bleach. There is a recipe. I think it's a teaspoon of bleach to uh, 25 liters of water, I think. 
not absolutely certain of the recipe, but I think that's how it goes. Um, so, so that also cleanses and purifies water. But obviously, we are not expecting people to go and take buckets of water out of those rivers and drink them. Everybody's drinking water that reaches them through the pipes and reservoirs. Uh, there is an unprecedented number of uh, broken pipes in your metro, as there are in our municipality in Newcastle, where I am. Uh, I saw from a report from our councillors yesterday that in one area alone, there were five burst pipes resulting in a prolonged outage of water. There's one area, one of our wards here in Newcastle, that has had no water for five days because of one pipe bursting after the other. Um, and of course, that can be attributed to the dilapidation over a period of time of infrastructure and, of course, the lack of maintenance. I don't have to tell you why that is the case. We have had uh, for a number of years in this municipality where I am uh, a governing party that has simply ignored uh, maintenance and done a whole lot of other things. So, of course, we're going to have these problems now. Um, and uh, the new government, um, the coalition government, I call it a coalition, it's not really a coalition, but a government that is in place now that is trying to tackle that problem. So uh, that is the situation regarding that. With regards to drinking lots of sugar, uh, sugary things during this time, I think that's a very bad idea. Sugar in general, you know, is an enemy of mine. I always uh, advise against using sugar at, for, for any reason. So let alone putting it into water and drinking it. Um, cold water, you know, from a Chinese medicine point of view, we always say, you know, it damages one of the systems, the digestive system, which we classify under the spleen organ in Chinese medicine. So we always say that, you know, um, don't drink cold water or ice water. I know it's hot and the temptation is there. Rather drink your ordinary ambient temperature water that comes out of your taps and um, keep yourself cool. There are also things that cool the body, cucumbers, watermelons. I particularly am not a, um, one that is a proponent of advising people to drink juices. I also think that's a bad idea and it damages the digestion, it damages the spleen, it damages the spleen chi, which is part of the digestive system in Chinese medicine, damages the stomach amongst the organ systems that we deal with in Chinese medicine. So I would say, you know, avoid juicing and juices, drink plenty of water, keep well hydrated. If you have conditions that cause you to dehydrate, uh, then you need to speak to your GP or your healthcare practitioner, whether it's a Chinese medicine practitioner or anybody else, about how to, for yourself, keep yourself well hydrated. And uh, but, but those are the general advices that I can give. Uh, stay cool, try and if you are in your house, of course, we need to ensure that we maintain our higher, but in our house, if we can keep uh, cool by, I currently am sitting and talking to you with a short sleeve kurta on, because it's very hot here. Um, yes, I can't tell you to keep your air conditioners and fans on all the time, because we don't have electricity all the time. Coincidentally, I'm going to be marching uh, to Luturi House, uh, on Wednesday, uh, in protest of the blackouts, the rolling blackouts that we are having, 
And so that is another thing on my agenda. But gee, there we are. You know, you read my mind. You you got a telepathy with me. But uh, before I get on that, you know, the, the the water issue. I mean, I'm I'm rather concerned because I'm buying like fifty liters a, a week uh, to just uh, for my drinking water alone, and the rest, you know, we use uh, washing, we use the other uh, other things, and we boil water also if you have to cook and all that. But uh, what I want to know from you, doctor, the process of osmosis, and uh, you know, you're going to these outlets, and they say, yeah, no, we uh, the, this water is uh, perfect, you can drink it, but you can see they're doing different pos- uh, processes and they're filtering it and all that. How safe is that water, doctor? Is it really uh, top quality drinking water? Well, reverse osmosis removes um, a significant amount of the pathogens in the water through the process that it uses. You get people that use ozone and other techniques to clean the water. Uh, obviously, that filtered water is generally better in terms of what it contains uh, than ordinary drinking water. Uh, and as I said, you know, one other way is to install, if you can afford it, uh, a water filter in your house that will also assist quite a bit so that is the situation in my opinion mm. and you talk about the water filter but uh, how often do you uh, replace your filters then well you know the water filtration companies will advise you about them uh, fortunately like i said here in newcastle we don't need them but people do have them but the water companies the the you get different brands in different makes. Some are better than the others. Uh, some are cheap knockoffs and imports that don't actually work well enough. Uh, but you do get many that are um, of decent quality, and you need to ensure that when you're installing these things, you get them from reputable companies. Sometimes, and obviously from the more reputable companies, they will cost you a few rands more. That is always advisable, and they will give you the schedule of when you need to change your filters. Uh, it's like a car, Brother Shafat. You know, we have service intervals, and the manufacturer will inform us for this uh, car. If you're driving a Toyota Corolla, they will tell you, and it's a petrol engine, they will tell you, look at so many kilometers, you, you, you've got to do an oil service, and at so many kilometers, you need to do this. And if you are driving uh, an Almera, like the one I have here parked in the yard, they will tell you that, you know, at so many kilometers you need to do, um, you know, this service and that. So similarly, you know, with with these uh, companies that install them for you, I think it's best to follow the advice that they give you. So I can't make a recommendation as to how often you should do it. Uh, But sometimes I always think like, you know, to keep my car going, I sometimes do it a few you know, if they tell me at every 15,000, I might do it at every 12,000 just to make sure that, you know, uh, the oil doesn't get too old. Uh, so you can do that also at your discretion if you feel that they said, you know, at every three months you've got to change it and at every two and a half months you decide to do it, alhamdulillah, even better for you. So you can do that uh, at your discretion and at the advice of the company that would install them. Well, I talk a lot for that. And also, you know, you talk about the big march coming up, uh, called by by the DA, and they they tried to poison Andre Durator because he was trying to do something and maybe get things, uh, you know, cleaned out, literally cleaned out as, as come beside that stones being put instead of uh, coal. And uh, here we had it, the NC Youth League uh, coming out quite vociferously. And, uh, you know, many want to know what is the educational level, what is the IQ level of the uh, ANC Youth League uh, making a statement. They're saying, ah, 
but because the DA can afford it and they have generators and they have this and then they have that and so forth. I mean, talking a lot of uh, uh, nonsense. The reality of the situation is they are not addressing the situation where a ruling party, you know, inherited one of the best, uh, you know, uh, utilities uh, of, uh, in, in the world when it came to ESCOM and they ran it to the ground. They ruined it. Uh, the looting and the sabotage came from higher up. And uh, they deliberately have uh, put that away. And many are accusing uh, the uh, Ramaphosa government of, uh, you know, letting it be so that, you know, uh, private uh, companies or the, uh, the, the conglomerates can come and take over that and, uh, you know, put the masses under more uh, zulum. But uh, the uh, DA deciding to march, perhaps uh, some may pose a question, uh, Dr. Imran Kika, you were the opposition all this time. Why were you not on these people at that time and time? Hey, you know what? You are ruining that uh, all the state-owned enterprises. You are doing this and that. Uh, maybe some will ask you the question: Is it a bit too late to march? How do you react to that, uh, Dr. Imran Kika? Brother Shafat, uh, first, all of those things that you said about the ANC are all correct. I don't think I can add anything more to it. Of course, I can, but it, it will just be driving home the point that you made that they are a useless governing party um, and they've ruined the country through state capture and they've ruined the country's infrastructure we just spoke about water now so you know not only is the uh, load shedding with regards to electricity there is um, water shedding effectively happening where infrastructure has also not been maintained and the load shedding is affecting uh, water supply because the water grid wherever it exists and the pumps that are at the reservoirs and so on have never been designed to be switched off yes the breakages are understandable you know you know machines have lifespan so they might break but they've never been beside uh, designed to be switched on and off um, for two hours at a time uh, four times or five times a day so that in itself, is causing a major problem. Newcastle for yesterday and today uh, was exempted from load shedding because the reservoirs in certain parts of the town needed to be filled up because uh, the load shedding had affected the town so much that the reservoirs could not be filled and people were not getting water on top of the burst pipes that are there. I already mentioned that lack of infrastructure. Uh, Brother Shafat, um, we are the only political party in the country that governs a province. No other political party governs another province um, as an opposition political party. So whilst we are the official opposition of the country and the official opposition in many provinces, in the Western Cape, we are the only other political party in the country where we govern. I don't have to tell you about who governs better in any province. I think anybody who visits the Western Cape uh, will, will immediately see the difference in governance between the Democratic Alliance and the ANC. I mean, that is a stark difference. So we have repeatedly put solutions on the table, including asking the, the national government to ring fence uh, ESCOM, call, you know, to declare it a disaster and an emergency and ring fence funding through national treasury to resolve the problems which will solve the problems 
And together with that, we've provided solutions to them to say that if you do X, Y, and Z, you will solve the problem. Not only arrest the decline in electricity infrastructure, but how to augment it, including having previously fought the case before the courts for the independent power producers that can augment that. If all of our municipalities that we run and, and in the province that we are in have taken steps to reduce load shedding uh, and the impact of load shedding and these rolling blackouts on our citizens. The city of Cape Town, for example, if we have stage six load shedding, they will have one stage lower. If they have stage one load shedding, if the country implements stage one load shedding, we will have no load shedding in that city because of the steps that have been taken by a proactive Democratic Alliance-led government to ensure that the citizens' lives are improved. The opposite is true uh, where the ANC governs. So we've done a hell of a lot more to improve the lives of citizens where we govern compared to where we are. Brother Shavad, there was a by-election in Msunduzi the other day, and I was doing some door-to-door. -door. It was on Wednesday last week. We won that ward in Ward 28. Uh, coincidentally, it was our ward. We fired the ward councillor because of, uh, dare I say, sexual misconduct against his ward secretary. We fired him. And then we had a by-election in that ward. In 2021, we won that by-election um, by 37. I mean, we won the election in 2021 in that ward by only 37 votes. So it was a very tough fight that we had in that ward against the ANC. And on the by-election day, Brother Shafat, just, just before I get to the by-election day, we won that ward with 57, 56% of the vote, and the ANC got 26% of the vote. They were quite confident that they were going to win that ward, and they got a bloody nose. So I was responsible. One of the duties that I was given on the election day was to call voters and remind them that it was election day and that they needed to go out to vote because people forget, you know, they're at work, it's not a public holiday and you need to remind people that please, there's a by-election in your ward, go and vote today. Brother Shafat, I have done this for the party on many occasions in many by-elections and never ever have I seen such excitement when I called people to remind them to go and vote to get rid of the ANC in that war, to make sure that they don't win. People were absolutely excited. People were calling me back and saying, yeah, I voted. People were sending me messages to say um, that we've taken our... One, one gentleman sent me a message. I've taken my mother-in-law and father-in-law and brother-in-law. I went and picked them up and I took them to go and vote. We don't want this ANC anymore. So there's this grand excitement and a movement that has started among citizens to, to say that you know, they're so happy to get rid of the ANC. But prior to that by-election, I was doing some door-to-door -door in that ward, and I, and I met a few people. I met a gentleman that had a very interesting conversation with me, and he said to me, you know, I'm fed up of South Africa. I'm fed up of this uh, these rolling blackouts. I'm fed up of being marginalized as an Indian South African. Um, you know, my children don't get jobs because of the color of their skin. I'm fed up of... Um, the, the corruption and, and degradation that is going on. So we are planning to leave uh, the country. We we have the wherewithal to leave the country, and our family has already decided that we need to pack up and go. So tongue-in-cheek, I just said to him, you know, sir, um, before you leave the country, why don't you go and contribute your 
wherewithal in a province that actually functions. You don't have to go far. You can go and settle down anywhere in the Western Cape. Yes, you'll still have you'll still have load shedding, but not the great impact that the rest of the country is experiencing. You live in a province that believes that uh, you know freedom, fairness, opportunity, and diversity are real values and ethics of a government. They have a caring government. The systems and and things in that province just work. Why don't you move there? So he said to me, he says, why should I go there? Um, have you not seen what is happening in Umgeni, which is Hawik? Have you not seen what's happening there? Um, and, and, and my mind switched modes immediately. And I said to him, you know, we're so used to telling people about the Western Cape. We forget about the success stories that we are having in the Umgeni municipality. That is Hawik. In, in less than a year of a DA government, Brother Shafat, we've got a clean audit. The, the municipality has become debt-free. It owes no government department any money. doesn't always come any money. And it's able to uh, take all of the income through the rates and equitable share and all those other sources of incomes that municipalities have, whether it is traffic fines that are issued to people. All of that money is now directed to the services of that municipality. By far and large, it had eradicated all the potholes, it has fixed the tourist sites, it has cut all the grass, it has fixed all the street lights, it's painted the roads. The community halls have all been resolved, so people don't have to go and you know spend large amounts of money to have the events and functions. The municipal municipality has bought new equipment, new tractors, new trucks. The municipality has gone in, you know, and, and even graded people's properties, you know, smallhold farmers have contacted the municipality to use the municipal tractors to grade so that they can plant, you know, these small subsistence farmers, all of these kinds of things, these small little things. I just saw, I just posted yesterday, um, I shared from Mayor Christopher Papas that they have, they've built a new building for the traffic department. Until now, until last year, the traffic department officials were operating from the boots of their cars from the municipal parking lot. They had no offices. They're grading roads, they're fixing roads. You know, all of these things are happening in less than one year of a change of government. And this is because the DA has an outright majority. Where these coalitions exist, the coalition partners, why we work with them, and where we are in coalition with others, you know, like here in Newcastle, we are working with the IFP-led government here. They are always things that never work as you would want them to work when a DA when, when the DA leads a government outright. And that is the offer that we made to citizens. Yet some citizens had this story, that story, and the other sat at home and didn't go and vote on election day. And I'm saying all of this because re citizens, people listening to us now, leave all your other side stories and, and go and put a government in place next year in 2024 when the ballot box comes. Uh, there was a gentleman that I was speaking to during that by-election that said to me, no, I won't vote, it won't make a difference. And I said, it's good people that think this, that it won't make a difference, that made a difference in a place like Umgeni and everywhere else. So I'm I'm already starting the election talk, uh, Brother Shafat, as you can notice from my speech. You know, this is very important. Everybody has a civic duty. Go out there, vote. And inshallah, that will see a, a change in the manner in which uh, governments are running this country and in, the, and in our provinces and in our municipalities. 
and people's lives change, things change. So as the opposition, where we are in opposition, we do everything that we can uh, to hold the government to account. And where we are not in opposition, we do everything that is possible to ensure that citizens get the best. And unlike um, some political parties that promote the crooks to parliament, we send them to prison. We caught a couple of guys recently and uh, it was a big case about, you know, how they ended up in court and in jail. And that's what a DA government does. So it was in one of our municipalities and unfortunately uh, it happened, but they were caught and that process is unfolding. But so be it. Uh, so we are not a government where we govern also. You know, it's, it's, it's unfair to say that there's absolutely no corruption and absolutely no stealing and absolutely no lack of service. Uh, delivery. I mean, they are, they are the usual problems because um, we still have to deal and contend with the national government that does not have its priorities in its place. So, well, but definitely in comparison, uh, you know, it's chalk and cheese. There's clear blue water between us and them. It's as simple as that. Zakalake for that, uh, Dr. Imran Kika. And, uh, you know, I uh, like uh, the proof that you brought in and uh, you gave us. Uh, uh, you know, facts and figures of what, uh, how the DA is uh, doing its job. And well done. Uh, you know, we looked at our Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who was both a uh, spiritual leader and also a, politi a political leader. And you know what, uh, Doctor, in the society that we live in, uh, it is perceived uh, that, uh, you know, you pay your rates, you pay your taxes and you want service delivery. And as you said, people have to cut their own lawns and have to carry their own dirt and uh, they're not getting water, they're not getting light. But they're still paying the bill at the end of the month. And I don't know how these guys make up that bill price and so forth. But the bottom line is, you know, the government should make its citizens stress-free. They shouldn't be putting Zulum on them where everyone is stressing and everyone, uh, you know, just can't take the pace and some having nervous breakdowns and some are getting more addicted to the bottle and so forth. But uh, can the government be sued for causing stress, uh, Dr. Imran Kika? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we can. Um, I'm sure if we find um, a clever legal person, we can ask them that question. Um, you know, it would be an interesting test of the law, Brother Shafat. Um, but in terms of suing the government and in terms of taking the government to court, um, we we have already filed as the Democratic Alliance papers uh, in in the High Court against government. The, the you know the eighteen point five percent or something like that the nursa uh, rate that has just been thrust upon us. I mean my electricity bill, if I round it off, is ten thousand rand a month, and if that if we round off that figure, uh, the nursa increase of twenty percent, that will mean that I'm going to literally be paying uh, two thousand rand more on my electricity bill every month, on top of. Um, you know, what I'm paying for a service that I'm not actually receiving properly. So this is absolute zulum and theft. Uh, so we we have filed papers as the party uh, against the government. Uh, so people ask us, what are we doing? Well, this is what we are doing. And, um, you know, the, the African National Congress, uh, you know, they, they intend to march, interestingly, um, with regards to the to the rolling blackouts and this is absolutely absurd they have presided over the collapse of our electrical grid our water systems and everything else in the country whether it's education health 
everything else. And of course, um, if there's individual cases that uh, have impacted on you, I'm quite certain that if you approach um, our legal people who are very smart, uh, they will be able to advise you whether you can uh, sue the government, you know, and, and I hope people would be able to do that. We do have Chapter 9 institutions, like the South African Human Rights Commission, for one, uh, that is there to ensure that whatever is in our Bill of Rights is upheld, and they can be approached for free. So we have approached them. We have gone to them, for example, with regards to those people that were affected by the floods last year, were stuffed into halls and you know the appalling conditions where the they were not provided with proper housing uh, sanitation and so on so we approached the human rights commission of course uh, we don't have the resource to take as a political party everything um, that comes our way to court although we would like to take many other things to court we just don't have the resources to do that so we have to use other means and systems um, and partner with other organizations uh, that also do these things. So there are many um, civil society organizations uh, that do take matters to court, and we work with them as well. So that is the approach that we have taken. So people have every right, every individual has a right to approach one of these um, Chapter 9 institutions and fight for their rights. It's, um, you know, like um, you will recall last year we had this incident of... Uh, a young man who was denied access to schooling because he wanted to keep his beard, if you remember that. So although we were able to resolve that with the department through engagement, where I was involved and others were involved, um, bodies like SAMNET and so on were all involved, civil society organizations, we, I eventually wrote to, to the MEC to say that, look here, Either this matter goes to court or we go to a Chapter 9 institution, um, which is known as the CRL, the Commission for Religious and Linguistic Rights. So we were going to approach them. Fortunately, the, the, the matter was overcome. They saw sense and the matter was eventually overcome. Uh, but citizens have every right to go and approach these things in their individual capacity, and they must. So I, I would say that a nice piece of reading for everybody today and, and you probably think i'm silly for saying this but we don't inform ourselves enough of our rights in the country who what our constitution allows us and doesn't allow us and a simple thing you can do is if you have access to google and you have a few moments to read that's the other thing we don't do is we don't read we rely on messages that we receive via whatsapp and we think that that is the the truth you know there is no greater truth than what we have holding in our hands, you know, some some very silly messages come. And then if we just look a little beyond them, we'll realize that they are just hocus pocus. But anyway, uh, I would advise a little bit of reading for everybody today or over the next few days, if you remember. Just Google your, con your South African constitution and read the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights uh, tell you what your rights are as, it is, as a citizen. The rest of the constitution spells out how those rights may be upheld. And what are the systems of government? Those are all technical things. If you want to peruse through them, you can have a look at them. But just, just go and have a look at what is in the Bill of Rights. And then you will know what your rights are as a citizen, what you are entitled to as a citizen. And of course, the other laws that have been developed around that. Uh, 
whether through court cases or pieces of legislation where the law has been developed to uphold those rights. So you, it's very important. Uh, know what your rights are, and then you can demand those rights, and you can go and ensure that those rights are delivered to you through lawful and legal means. For example, the right to protest. It's there, it's enshrined in the Constitution. Um, it is there in the Bill of Rights. It must be done peacefully without damage of property. You go and you march because this is a way of protesting against a government that is not delivering its services. People will ask, oh, what will that achieve? Well, it achieves a lot. Uh, the more the citizens mount protest against the government, government will listen. I'll give you a simple example. You know when that uh, when um, Minister, I think it was Natim Tetwa, put out the story about the 22 million rand flag. He wanted to put out, you know, hoist the flag uh, to foster patriotism for 22 million rands. Uh, the nation stood up against that thing and and pointed out how ridiculous it was, and that was the nation's protest. And that decision was rescinded. I believe that he's going to resurrect it again soon. And we must stand up against it soon. But that's the power of protest. So we mustn't think that our voices just won't be heard. And the ultimate protest against the ANC-led government is to go and vote against them at the ballot box next year. Go and vote against them. And that will put a government in place that is not the one that you have now. And yes, indeed, it will take a bit of time to fix those things because we, when you inherit a mess, it takes time to fix that mess. When we inherited the mess in the Western Cape, it took time for us to fix the Western Cape. Just to anecdotally mention to you, uh, I, we, we heard the story last year when we visited the Western Cape to learn some things from them uh, as the Democratic Alliance from KwaZulu-Natal when we went there. The Premier was telling us, the Premier of the Western Cape, Alan Windy, was telling us that when they inherited the province and the health minister, the provincial health minister walked into his office for the first time, he found in his office 7,000 Cuban cigars in the cupboards. So it seemed that the previous uh, health MEC or minister in that province was making one hell of a collection of Cuban cigars. He found 7,000 of them in the office. So those are the kinds of silly things that we can talk about and things that the ANC government was doing there. And that is why the people protested against that government and went and voted them out and voted a new government in. And they haven't looked back since then, what's and all. So that's, that's what I have to say about that. You know, you're being involved in the educational portfolio and all that. A, a retired uh, a maths educator uh, Ashraf Banubai sent me this, and the, he says that uh, the stats uh, percentage pass is very misleading. Getting 30% constitutes a pass. So 80% achieved uh, that. Realistically, a decent pass to make it in the higher education is somewhat like higher than 30%. So take your pick. If your pass rate was based on 50% aggregates, like it was uh, done in our time, and uh, the majority of the developed world, the pass rate would uh, drop from 80% to more like 45 to 50%. Show me one country in Africa that uses such a low benchmark. So why are we surprised that the same outcomes persist in higher education? This is a huge drain on the economy and a mental breaker for many. In addition to the dropouts, certain principals are encouraged to hold back weak students in grade 11, and the deception continues with the so-called weaker cohorts in uh, grade 12 being registered silently 
as private candidates. This is a cosmetic visage to boost the pass rates. These students generally are none the wiser as they sit in the same class, wear the same uniform, pay the same fees, write the same exams in the same exam halls. The difference are being that the school registers them in the private stream for exam purposes. I mean, it goes on and on, uh, uh, Dr. Imran Kika, but this is the sad reality of this country. And then you get uh, substandard or below uh, grade uh, stu- you know, students going to university and because of their color, uh, they've been forced into academic institutes, which lowers the level of our uh, you know, uh, universities and so forth. How do you react to that, uh, Dr. Imran Kika? And once again, putting pressure on the educators of you know uh, that caliber, the professors. I mean, you talk to the professors, they will cry. They will cry. They say, you know what? This is normally an academic institution. It's an institution where there is uh, always uh, anger, there is protest, and uh, you know uh, uh, some of the students that we accept in this, these universities can't even speak the language. Uh, how do you react to that, uh, Doctor Imran Kika? So the. Part of what you read is quite interesting. Um, you know, many people have many views about um, higher education and what happens there. But from a basic education point of view, if you listen to my colleague from the DA, uh, Pax Nodata, our shadow minister of edu- basic education, uh, he has been speaking very recently about exactly that, the quality of education, the quality of the passes, and what actually can be done with those passes. So, for example, if you finish a matric in South Africa, would you be able, if you went to any other country, with the quality of the passes that we obtain here, the bachelor passes, would it be enough to admit you to a university or get you into tertiary education of any sort in other parts of the world? That is one benchmark that you can dissect. So that is the one thing. So definitely we need to talk about... um, the basic education, in, in basic education, the quality of education being provided. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, some people say that, uh, you know, one of the benchmarks of the quality of education that you can use that is provided at, in our schools is would any university that applies a uniform equity based admission criteria admit everybody to university that comes out with um, the passes that they do that's another question to ask and and it's probably something where we can uh, may i suggest to you that you get on your show somebody from higher education that deals with uh, admission criteria to university and ask them this question Uh, if they had to apply this what would be the state of admissions to the universities and of course, then it brings me to, uh, or I'm going to release a press statement tomorrow on this matter about the real pass mark. I'll come to that dissection just now. So, Brother Ashraf um, speaks about very many interesting things. And, you know, there are parts that I agree with. And of course, parts that um, I think that might need fleshing out in terms of understanding what he's trying to say. So the quality of education is very important. Uh, so people end up, leaving matric with bachelor passes but what are the if you look at the provinces across the country how many distinctions did people get what was the quality of the paper that led to those distinctions is the standard dropping all the time 
the increased pass mark was it as a result of decreased quality of exams that were given. So these are assessments that now need to be looked at. So we, we see this issue of um, saying that, you know, the overall pass mark in the country was 80%, for example, but the real pass mark that we say is not that because you have learners that are dropping out for various reasons. So the Democratic Alliance has, over a number of years, calculated what we call the real pass mark. And we do this by looking at a cohort of metrics. So we don't just say that, look, we, we need to look at the metric exams, those that came into metric, and we need to um, look at the, assess the final assessment. And we say in KwaZulu-Natal, 83% of them passed. And therefore, you know, we have a very good system that's going on. But what about those that went through the schooling system that re didn't reach that point in the first place? And this raises your question of people reaching university that can't um, properly uh, read for meaning. And that raises other questions about uh, mother tongue education and so on. But that's not something that I want to talk about now. I want to talk about the real metric pass mark. So we look at the cohort. We always make this assessment and we say the real pass mark should be based on um, the cohort of grade 10, grade 11, and grade 12. So all those that enter the, the, the senior phase of uh, education in schools, that is your grade 10, 11, and 12, are they the same number that get to matric in grade 12? That's the first thing. Then of those that do reach matric in grade 12, uh, do all of them pass? So that is the second thing. So what we have found is that if you look at KwaZulu-Natal last year, when we did this calculation based on the cohort of matriculants or, or the cohort of matrics that entered grade 10, went to grade 11 and grade 12, we found that whilst the province had 76% or 77% pass mark, if you round it off, we calculated at 54.7% of those that entered grade 10 and passed in grade 12 in 2021. That was the calculation, it was 54.7%. And then if you look at those that entered grade 10 and exited in grade 12 last year, we calculated that it is 57.8%. In reality, the pass mark in KwaZulu-Natal wasn't the 6% that the minister was touting, it was 0.1%. That is what we are saying. And we'll back it up by the evidence. And we also back it up by saying that leading academics at UCT will tell you that this is exactly how you should be calculating it to understand various things. Not only understand how many people have dropped out in between, but also to talk about the quality of education, the question that you raised. What's happening to them? And as far as those that have dropped out, where are they? Where are the systems in place to trace all of those learners, to bring them back into the schooling system, to ensure that they are able to access the opportunities that come with holding a metric certificate in your hand? Even if it was not a bachelor's pass rate to get you into a university, but the TVET colleges are there, job opportunities are there that require metric, I recently did interviews for some people that I want to employ in my own business on behalf of my brother. And one of the questions that I asked them was, do you have a metric certificate? 
And for then there were people that came to the interviews that simply did not have that. You and so, you know, these are the kinds of things that are you need a metric certificate. So what happen, what happens to those hundreds of thousands of learners across the country that dropped out of the system that were not found? The reasons were not found, and those people not brought back into the system to exit the system through, even if it is through adult uh, you know, education and training, because those opportunities are provided by the department. The de department has a system in place to ensure that people do get their metric, even if you are 50 years old and don't have your metric, there is a system for you to go through and get your metric eventually. And so the Department of Basic Education is neglecting this entirely. And therefore, you have all of these people uh, that end up on the unemployment lines, do not or, un, or are unable to access opportunity because they don't have a metric certificate. When I visited schools, um, and we visit them twice a year, every year, and we visit schools in between as well, where problems arise and we do spot checks on schools. And when we ask them this question, do you have a system? We ask the district, we ask the department themselves, do you have a system? Because you have the contact details, you know that the learners dropped out, you know where they live, you know where their physical addresses are but there's absolutely no system in place to track and trace them and say, look, what happened to this learner? Why are you not in a school? Let us get you back to schooling, whatever the circumstances may be, whether they dropped out because of teenage pregnancy, whether they had some personal circumstance at home that they had to drop out, whatever the reason may be. You know, maybe the head of the household passed on and they had to then go and work, whatever the circumstance may be. We need to go and look at those things. There are safety nets in place. There are solutions in place to try and resolve these problems. One of the proposals that we have made um, as the Democratic Alliance is that the schooling system uh, must ensure, for example, that by the time uh, learners, um, deserving learners, or all learners, in fact, leave matric, they should leave with a driver's license. Uh, it's a suggestion that we made. It's a little bit of a tricky thing, but there are schools where we have piloted in the Western Cape that learners leave the schooling system with a driver's license. And this has ensured that people have greater access to opportunities if you are able to drive. So that is something that we would like to see. And then, of course, there are learners uh, that drop out of the system because of their abilities or inabilities, let's put it that way. So they can't properly grasp um, the information in school to be able to get to matric and pass matric with a bachelor's. So they may have learning disabilities. So provinces do have special schools to accommodate for these. But having visited uh, these schools, for example, I visited the school in, in, in the Western Cape where they cater for learners that can't read and write at all. So that means uh, that these learners will not be able to read a recipe from a book or they will not be able to understand a biology lesson if they are asked to read it, uh, let alone uh, get through mathematics. But there is a school there. These learners were identified from other schools and sent to the school. It's such a school where learners are then taught through different means. That means they are taught um, technical things. They leave the school as mechanics, as tailors. They leave the school as chefs and they leave the school uh, having been taught waitering skills and many other skills so that they are not just lost to, to society 
and lost to the unemployment lines, they are employable. The Western Cape government has gone so far as to issue its own certificate to these graduates and then also place these learners through internships. They will approach, for example, a company like Daimler Chrysler and say, look, we've trained this, these learners, these 10 boys or girls. We, they know how to change the brakes in a car. They know how to deal with the suspension. They can change the shocks. They can service a vehicle. These other learners, um, you know, they've been taught how to cook X, Y, and Z. These restaurants, would you not employ them? Give them a trial. Give them an internship, even paid or unpaid internship. And it has been found that at least 98% of those learners that come out of these schools that are placed through these programs are eventually employed. They get work. They're able to contribute to what we call a capable and ethical and what is what we especially call a caring state in the Western Cape. So if one province can achieve these kinds of things, why are the other eight provinces in terms of quality of education, caring in education, ensuring that there are better schooling environments that will produce better learners all sleeping? So if you come to KwaZulu-Natal, they will tell you, look, we have 76 uh, special needs schools here. But none of these special needs schools cater for learners like I've just mentioned. What happens to those learners? So yes, there is a big question about the quality of our passes. There's a big question around ensuring that the schooling system produces for you a learner at the end of 12 years of learning in schools, um, learners that are able to contribute towards the growing of the state. I've just come back from Finland, Brother Shafat. I don't even know how much of time I have to speak to you, but I've just come back from Finland where we've done um, a study tour as part of the legislature program to go and have a look at the education system. It's a fantastic education system that works. You won't believe this, Brother Shafat. We asked them, how do you evaluate your, your system of education? How do you evaluate whether your teachers are performing whether your classes are passing, although they do have an exam. How do you assess whether people are actually doing their work? Wallahi, Brother Shafat, it shocked us, it shocked me when they said, our system is entirely based on trust. We have no evaluation system. There's nobody that goes and evaluates whether a teacher in a classroom is doing their job, whether the principal is doing his work, whether the circuit manager or whatever system they have in place is actually doing their job. They base it entirely on trust, Brother Shafar. Something that I translated when I was speaking to my colleagues there, I said they realized that for their country to function, they need to be patriotic. They need to ensure that they are contributing to a capable and ethical state. I don't have to tell you that Finland is one of the first world countries. And what is their system? It's not a big stick approach, Brother Shafar. It's based on trust. We went to a teacher training college. We asked them, who monitors the quality of your education that you provide here? You are training the teachers that will end up in a classroom. Who comes and monitors you? They said, nobody comes here. We do it. We are the ones responsible for ensuring that the future generations will receive quality education. We don't get the professors coming here and checking on us. We don't get the government coming here and checking on us. We do it. Because we understand that that is our responsibility. Imagine if we had such a thing in our, in our government where it operates on a system of trust. It reminds me of the time of Omar, Abu Bakr, Uthman, Ali. 
where when they had a kavi in the court, nobody had to go and check on him. It operated on on on, on trust and that Allah Ta'ala is looking at him. This is how that government operates. That is how their education system operates. And that is why they have one of the best functioning education systems in the world where they operate on a system like this. So we went there, we saw the, we met with the education portfolio, we met with the, uh, we went to a school, we went to see how they operate. It is ajeeb how they work and how they operate. And, and we just, when we spoke amongst ourselves, just imagined, can you believe that they have this kind of a thing there? And I said to my colleagues from the ANC, I said to them, can you imagine our department operating on trust? What will happen when we have principals in schools <laughs> who are swiping their uh, school? Uh, you know, government gives the school money to cut its grass and, and fix its infrastructure. Principals, we know of principals. They take these cards and go and do shopping, buy groceries uh, for them, for them, for their houses, and they buy uh, dresses for their girlfriends. We have heard these cases. People have brought this to our attention. So how do you operate in a system of trust? How do you inculcate trust? How do you train people? How do you invest in a society that will operate on a system of trust eventually? Um, it has to start with the individual. It has to start with the schooling system itself, training learners to do simple things as don't litter the streets. Cross When you walk across the road, walk fast. When you have a textbook, have enough Respect for the textbook that you will return it at the end of the year, that your your next colleague and your next peer that comes after you will be able to use the textbook. We have a shortage of over 5 million textbooks in KwaZulu-Natal right now. That is in response to a parliamentary question that I sent to the former MC. 5 million textbooks short in KwaZulu-Natal because people don't return them. So that, is, you, that is an issue of trust. You, you know, know so... The, I tell yeah. you, very eloquent indeed. Actually, we run out of time. And uh, you were so good. Like I said, hey, let's push the limit. And uh, already, you know, we run out of time. But uh, what I want to tell you, perhaps, inshallah, part two, three, and four, we, we need to get in touch with you. Absolutely eloquent on the medical show. But, you know, we brought it in because uh, education is a cause for refined disposition. And uh, we bring that in. And if your mind is clear and your children are well educated, everything, the nation can be good. Uh, the, nay, the whole world can be good. Doctor, I'm giving you 30 seconds, your parting words uh, this evening. Brother Shafat, um, you know, we spoke about a lot of pol politics. We spoke about education. We spoke about, we touched mildly on health at the beginning with regards to the water and, and, and things like that and how to keep cool and hydrated and keep well. Brother Shafat, my advice on the health side would be always take your chronic medication Go and check your vitamin D levels, follow uh, a good diet, uh, do exercise regularly, even if it is mild exercise. One of the easiest and simplest things you can do is do a lot of walking. Go and get yourself checked up regularly. Go and see your healthcare practitioner. And I say healthcare practitioner because it's not limited only to a medical doctor. It could be your nurse practitioner. It could be your homeopath. It could be your Chinese medicine doctor, Unani medicine doctor, whatever. Go and get yourself checked up. Always ensure that those practitioners in the alternative medicine field are registered with the Allied Health Professions Council of South Africa. You have every right to ask. Go and ask them if they are registered and then see them. Go and do yourself a favor to recap, read through the Bill of Rights so that you know what are your rights as a citizen. And number three, if you have not voted 
and register to vote, it's easy these days. You can go online and register to vote. Go and register to vote, and next year make sure you cast your vote. I will be certain to come and campaign on behalf of my party and talk to you about politics and, and ask you to vote for my party, uh, notwithstanding all the side stories, but we'll talk about politics in general and we'll talk about accountability. And you need to hold your public representatives to account. It's also very important to know what are the duties and functions of your councillors that you elected, your members of parliament, your members of the legislature, what their roles, responsibilities and duties are. And you need to make sure that you hold everybody accountable through the ballot box. And very importantly, as you correctly said, we need to ensure good quality education. We need to pay attention as parents, especially in the education of our children. We mustn't leave it only to the teacher and Ustad. We must know what is happening in the school. We must know what is happening in the classroom. We must take an active and keen interest in what is happening in the education of our learners. Otherwise, it will go past us and we won't even know what they're doing. It is very important to give our children Dini education, to make sure that our children address attend mad, uh, the Madaris. It is just as, just as important as it is to make sure that school education is given, that our children go to good Madaris, that where we have teachers that are teaching them the correct Deen, where we have them teaching the correct Akida, where we have them teaching the correct Tajweed, simple things that our children leave madrasa able to read salah, may ghusl, fard ghusl, and understand the faraid of deen and children that know the sunnah of Nabiya Karim sallallahu alayhi wa If we're able to do these very basic things, all our societies will be able to operate on trust. We will be better in sun. And also very important about being a good citizen is never ever succumb to giving anybody a bribe. This is a big curse a big haram, a big problem that is causing our society to deteriorate. Rather do without, rather struggle, but don't pay a bribe. Last piece of advice. Jazakallah Kaida, Dr. Imran uh, Kika, as uh, you know, Allah's giving you the gift, but uh, before, uh, you know, you can walk the talk. You talk the talk, but you can walk the talk. That's the important thing. Everyone talks the talk, but you walk the talk. Allah bless you, Allah keep you. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for the opportunity. I ask everybody to remember me and my family in the duas. And may Allah ta'ala grant all the marhumin channel to those and elevate their status and forgive them, inshallah. Tell And uh, time for us to go for the Isha'zan. And inshallah, we will continue after that.